Well, one more time, good morning. I'm so glad that you're here. My name is Ben. Welcome to Four Corners. If you're our guest, a special welcome to you. You've joined us on the third week of a message series called Turning Points, where we're looking at what Jesus did and how it changed everything. And if you want, if you're a regular attender, you know this is the time we pull out our message notes. But if you're our guest, just before you do that, I'd like you to grab your Connect card that Pastor Will was telling you about. And give us your name and address, and we'd like to say thanks for being with us. We're going to do that by sending you in the mail some Chick-fil-A coupons for free food. And we're not going to show up at your door. It's kind of a no-hassle guarantee if you give us your name and address. We don't sell our information to make a little bit of money. We just want to say thanks for being with us. And if you'll go ahead and put your name and address and email on there, you'll be ready to participate at the end of our time together. Well, like I said, it's the third week of our message series called Turning Point. And you can follow along with what we're doing in your program guide that looks like this. The message notes are on the inside. And if for some reason while I'm talking you get a little distracted, on the front of your message notes, there's some information about something that we do around here every Christmas. Um, I'm sensitive that if you're our guest, I would like for you not to believe that we're all about your money. We're not here. But at Christmas time, our church participates together in a Christmas offering. This year it's called Hearts and Hands, and what we're going to do is we're going to ask God through our integrity of hearts, through the work of our hands, to make a difference in the next generation. And how all that's going to go down is available for you right there on the front of your message notes. Most of our work that we do here through this Christmas offering is going to be impacting students and children so we have an orphanage in Kerala, India that we've built and primarily sponsored. There are a few other folks who help as well, but most of it happens right through this church. And we're getting ready to help a church in Cuba expand its property and ministry and better serve the orphan and the fatherless in Cuba. And you can find out a little bit more about that. You can watch last week's message at fourcornerschurch.com and find out a lot more about that. And I'll tell you just a little bit more about it in the message today. All right, I want to take you, though, right now, as we get ready to talk about the turning point number three, I want to take you back to a point in Israel's history. That's the country that from, and, and, the, and the people group from which Jesus came. I want to take you back to a time in the Old Testament. The Old Testament are the, are the writings of the history of this Jewish or Israelite people. And I want to take you back to a time when there was a man named Moses, and he was standing in front of a bush that was burning, but it wasn't being consumed. This is called the burning bush moment. It's essential to understanding the story of the Bible. This is that moment where God is going to call Moses, and he's going to use Moses to help rescue his people, God's people, out of Egypt. And Moses had been in Egypt, but he'd made some mistakes, and now he's in the wilderness, and he's tending his father-in-law's sheep, and one just everyday, normal day, he's out in the, in the field, out in the, in the backlands, and he comes upon this bush that's burning but not being consumed. And that's interesting. That's like a miracle in the Bible. But what's more interesting than the bush that's burning but not being consumed is the conversation that God has with Moses in that exact moment. It's a conversation that sets a background for our words today. We're going to look at Jesus. We're going to fast forward from Moses several hundred years and get to Jesus. But we have to understand a little bit about what happened in that conversation because it's going to make sense of what Jesus said and did. While God was talking to Moses, he's telling Moses, Moses, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you powerfully. I'm going to change the direction of your life. You thought your life was over. It's not. You're several years old. You're, you're like very old now. 
but I'm still going to use you. You're not used up. And I want you to take my people out of, it, out of Egypt. And Moses just very naturally and normally says, hey, who am I talking to? Who am I talking to? Am I talking to a bush? Am I talking to one of the gods of the, of the region? Am I talking about the, to the God that I heard about when I was a child raised in an Egyptian home, but really raised by my mother as the caretaker? Is that the, who am I talking to? And in answer to the question of who are you, God says to Moses through the bush, I am is speaking to you. I am. I am. That's the name that God gave himself. I am. Now, theologians for hundreds of years have wrestled and tried to plumb the depths of what it means, what's the implications for God's name being I am. And we could spend the whole time this morning just talking about how powerful and wonderful and deep and precious and life-changing is the name of God. But I want to just scratch the surface on that. That phrase, I am, God's chosen name, at the very minimum means this. God is ever-present. He's always there. He's always been. He is right now. And he will be. Some of you come from a Catholic background or a more liturgical church. We're a little bit less formal than that. We have our own liturgy, but it, you, know, you don't have to read along. You don't have to know when to bow and that sort of stuff. And you remember a particular set of words you used to use in your other church experience. Went something like this. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. How many of you, just by quick showing your hands, you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, so our church is about 60, 65% Catholic before coming here. And we have some Lutherans as well and some other high church Episcopalians, that sort of thing. And that phrase harkens back, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will It harkens back to the very conversation Moses had at the burning bush. I am the ever-present God. Christ has died for Christians. He is risen, present, active. He will come again. I had a chance to think about that phrase this week. Because in our moment of Jesus' life that we're going to explore today, Jesus is going to use the exact same phrase that God spoke to Moses when Moses said, who are you? Jesus is going to use the words, I am. And today, I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about the implications of the phrase, I am. We're going to talk about the future. That part of God that we have not yet experienced, that part of life we haven't experienced. You all have a future. I don't know what it is. I have hopes for mine. I bet you have hopes for yours. I have hopes for my kids' futures. I don't know what it is. But one thing that gives me confidence as I look to the future is this, that the God who has been present with me in the past, the God who is here with us right now as we sung those songs together, that same God is going to be with us in the future. He just is. And when God chose to tell us about himself first in the clearest words used in the Bible of his self-identification, he chose to tell us that no matter what stage of life we're in, he's with us. In fact, the most, this is interesting, the most oft-repeated phrase in the Bible by God to humanity, from God directly or through God's messengers, is the phrase, do not be afraid. 
But the second most repeated phrase in the Bible from God or God's messengers to humanity is the phrase, I'm with you. In fact, those are connected. You don't have to be afraid because I'm with you. You don't have to be afraid because I'm with you. And this understanding of how God is always present actually is meant to build confidence in us. Some of you can look back in your past, times when you weren't even following God, you weren't even maybe having God on your mind at all, but you can look back in your past and you can see in your past the active presence of God working and weaving through your life. And now from this vantage point you're in, you look backwards and you go, I didn't know it at the time, but God was already working his thing in my life. He was. I didn't know it at the time. But I come to this point and I can see that the I am God was already at work. Some of you, like right now, you're in the middle of a thing and it's stressful. And there's information you don't, you'd rather not have to deal with. But your faith, the active presence of God in your life is a calming agent. It's a peace bringing agent to the moment you're in. Some of you. You know a little about, about what the future holds. You have some early indicators of a few things you're going to face. And it's scary, it's big, bigger than you. But you have a faith that tells you when you get there, God will be there with you. I am. I am. It's a big deal. We're going to get beyond this in just a moment. But I want to park here for just one more minute. Here's what I know about those of us that walked in this room. Whether it was this week or whether it was 15 years ago, all of us have a past. Right? You literally have a past that's just 30 seconds old where I told you all of us have a past. I mean, we all have a past, right? We all have a past. All of us have a past. And for some of you, there's stuff in your past that you have not yet wrestled fully with. You have not fully engaged in other words, the stuff from your past is still, in a loud way, speaking in your current life. And it's not all good. I just wanted to just speak this over all of us. God was there in that stuff. He was aware. And his purpose in that stuff, ultimately, whether, he, you know, whether you blamed him for it, whether you think he caused it, whether you think he allowed it, his purpose in it was is to use the events of your life to show you you can trust him and depend on him, and he can bring good even out of the worst of circumstances. God can redeem your past. Some of us have some bitterness to deal with. Others of us were taken advantage of. Some of us were hurt deeply. We were betrayed. We, we weren't handled correctly. People made promises and didn't keep them. God wants to use that to show you he wants to be a part of your life. He, he was there, and he's still working. Some of you literally walked in today and you came and you hoped to get an encouraging word. You, you thought, if I go to church, maybe, you know, I lift my spirits, do something, help me. The good news is, is that's exactly what God wants to do. And for those of you looking just a few days away or a few months away and there's something in front of you, I just want to remind you, God will be there. When God chose to tell you who he was, to tell us through the pages of the Bible his name, he said, I am the I am God. So God wanted us to know who he was. And God wants us to have a very tangible and 
open relationship with him. So God sent, the I am God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to build a relationship with us, to be known by him. To not just know about him, but to know him. Which brings me to my first blank. Number one, in your message notes, for Christians, <clears throat> remaining anonymous isn't an option. It's not an option to remain anonymous with God. If you're a Christian, the whole point of being a Christian is, is you are getting to know God, and he's in an active, knowing relationship with you. He knows your name. Your past, he knows it. Your present, he knows it. And thank God, your future, he knows it. He knows exactly how that thing's going to work out. You can't be anonymous and be in a relationship with God. The whole thing is, is he knows us. He tells us his name so he can be known. And he moves into our lives so we can be known by him. It's a wonderful thing that he this is the whole reason Jesus came. And so Jesus came to this earth. He walked around with 12 ordinary men and hundreds more. And one particular day, our scene today, one particular day, Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks a very profound question. And when they get done with this conversation, everything's going to be different. Everything. Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, in Matthew chapter 16, you can go in your Bible and your phone. I have some of the message notes. Or I have some of the verses in your message notes. Follow along on the screen, whatever. You can go there. In Matthew 16, Jesus turns to these 12 people and he says, who are people saying I am? That's a little interesting. Who do people say I am? That is the same phrase that Moses heard at the burning bush. Who am I? Who are people saying I am? Now, in response to this question, the disciples, who I, I like to imagine is kind of like the eager, sometimes the eager students in the classroom. Um, they want to answer the question. The relationship they have with Jesus is in some ways kind of teacher, student, rabbi, disciple. And so he asked them a question. This is a normal part of the teaching method. I ask questions, you answer, we discuss together. And in the discussing together, the truth gets revealed. Who do people say I am? And they begin to answer him. Some say, you're like an Old Testament prophet. Some say, like, you're like Elijah, come back. Some, some say, you know, you're, 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 the, you're, you're the newest thing, the, the newest thing God is doing in a long series of things that God is doing. And Jesus is like, that's cool. But here's the point. Who do you say I am? Right there in your message notes, we'll pick up the language. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, who often speaks first, he in all likelihood was the oldest guy in the group. We don't know that for sure. It's likely that John was the youngest and Peter was the oldest just by some anecdotal evidence. Peter often going first, that would be reserved for the oldest. Um, when Jesus has this conversation with Peter, he's going to look to Peter and say, look, you're going to be instrumental in what I'm going to do. That would be kind of reserved for the oldest. It's Peter who's often had all the significant events. So he's, Simon Peter answers, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. 
For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you're Peter. Now there's some word play going to happen here. The, the Greek word in um, the original language in which our Bible was written in Greek, the Greek word for Peter is Petros. You're Petros, which is going to be interesting. You are Petros, and on this rock, and the Greek word for rock is Petra, Petra. You are Petros, and on the Petra, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome it. Now, lots have been made about this verse. There's like nine different ways we can go here. What was the thing that Jesus was affirming in Peter? Jesus was looking at Peter saying, you've done a really good job. Your name is Simon. I'm going to call you Peter the Rock. And upon the rock, I'm going to build my church. And so some people say, Peter is the foundation of the church. And they're not completely wrong, but they're not completely right. Other people say it's not Peter at all. It's what Peter said. When Peter said, you're the Christ, that's the foundation upon which God is going to build his church. That's actually more right. Although it's probably not completely all that's implied in the statement of Jesus saying, you're Peter and upon this rock I'll build my church. But there's something powerful in Peter's confession. And it was the confession that Peter made that brought power to Peter. It works both ways. And God looks at Peter and says, with that in your mouth, with that in your mouth, with that confession in your mouth, I'm going to build the church. I'm going to do something powerful with that understanding in your head that didn't just come from you, by the way. It came from the Spirit of God. With that reality that I'm the Christ, I'm going to do something powerful through you. I'm going to build the church. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The way God builds the church. Not an organization, not a denomination, not even a congregation represented by the building in which we meet. In our case, located on the Liberty Way exit of I-75, not that. But the group of people through whom God will change the world. With that confession in your mouth, with that reality in your head that I'm the Christ, I will do something powerful in the world and in your life. These words given to Peter weren't just for Peter. I, I believe they're for all of us. That when we come alive to the spirit of God, that Jesus was not just a man. He was not just a good example. He literally was the savior of the world. He's the Christ. He's the Lord. When that comes alive to us, there is open to you a possibility of God doing something powerful in your life. And that thing that he does, it will stand like a rock. It won't be shifting sand. It will be a rock in your life. Blank number two in your message notes. The blank there is the phrase, I am. Who do men say that I am? I am represents that all-encompassing, ever-present God. Who was, who is, who will be. And you and I can grab hold of that definition of God, the God who was, who is, who will be. We can see the beauty of that and the depth of that and the majesty of that. And that confession, that reality in our minds can change us. 
In fact, number three, I think if we'll confess this faithfully, we're unstoppable. I think if we confess this faithfully, we're unstoppable. When Peter said to Jesus, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, Peter said, there it is. Jesus said to Peter, there it is. There it is. That's the thing that's going to change everything. And upon you, Peter, with that in your mouth, with that in your head, I'm going to build something that's going to be rock solid. My church. And it's not just going to be static. It's actually going to do powerful work in this world. And the description Jesus uses is really cool. You can't miss this, all right? He says, it's going to be so powerful that the gates of hell, all the darkness in this world, they're not going to be able to withstand the work of the church. Now, what's cool about that? What's cool about that is that this phrase, the gates of hell will not withstand, in number four, this verse is about Satan's inability to keep us from plundering his kingdom. It's not about his inability to plunder ours. Gates are a defensive weapon and the church on the move. The people of God with the confession of who Jesus is in their life, with that thing in their mind, with that reality driving them, that will literally push back darkness and hell's own gates won't be able to withstand. They'll bust open. So number five, Jesus promised that he'd let us advance deeper and deeper into the enemy's category or into the enemy's territory rather. He'd let us advance deeper and deeper. And all this can sound in the clouds and esoteric. Let me bring it down. What, what Jesus is telling us here is that he's going to gather a group of people, the church. That word there in the Greek is ekklesia. Ekklesia. It's, it's, it's a two-part Greek word. It literally means called out. Ek is out and klesia is called the called out ones. You were over here, but I'm going to call you out. I'm going to call you out, and I'm going to bring you together. And when I call you out and I bring you together, your life is going to change. How? You just get to go to heaven? Well, no, you do get to go to heaven. That, that's good, but that's not it. When I call you out, and I call you to myself, and you're aware of who I am and what I can do in your life, that is going to revolutionize everything about you. It'll, it'll revolutionize the way you do marriage. It will. Now, let me just very quickly connect the dots. If Jesus is the Lord, and if he's the one who's called you out, and if he's at work in your life, then you'll come to your marriage understanding and valuing what Jesus values in marriage. That the person you're married to is also called out. That when you engage them, you're engaging a person made in the image of God. When you engage conflict, it's not your will or her will or his will. It's his will that should dictate what we're driving towards. Instead of just fighting about money, what you want, what I want, what they want, what we have, you'll start asking a deeper question. What does the Lord want us to do with our money? And that will become the foundation of unity for you. And when it comes to your kids, it's not just here's what I'd like to do and I'm so busy over here and what would you like to do and would you fix your daughter and none of that. It's 
I wonder what God's will for our children is. I wonder what Jesus would like for us to do in our parenting with our kids. This confession, you're the Christ, is supposed to permeate all of our lives. And that's part of what it means to be the church. Not just a building, certainly not just an organization. All those things are valid, but it's a movement of people that God is transforming personally and he's transforming the world through them. And how powerful is this group of people? The very gates of darkness will not be able to withhold as the church steps forward to advance the light. This is powerful imagery. If there's darkness in your marriage, that darkness has to give way to the authority and power of Jesus. When each person in a family gives way to the authority and power of Jesus, they establish a rock, a foundation that is not easily shaken. They're able to deal with their past knowing that he was there. They can deal with what they're facing knowing he is here. And they can deal with their future knowing when we get there, he'll be there before we get there. When we show up, he's already there. And so all we have to do, it's very simple to say and very complicated to live out, is keep in our minds the confession. You're Jesus. You're the Christ. You're the authority setter. You're the future holder. You're the one. And then begin to tease that out into every area of our life. Let me just ask you real quick, before I go on to our big points. When's the last time you contemplated, if you're a follower of Jesus, hear me, hear me. When's the last time you said with sincere and humble heart, Jesus, what do you want me to do about this? You fill in the blank. Whatever is that thing that keeps eating your lunch. Whatever is that dynamic that keeps draining your energy, go positive. Whatever is that hope that keeps you awake at night that you dream about. Whatever is that relational thing. When's the last time you said, Jesus, you're the Lord. I, I'm connected to you. You called me out of the world and into you. I'm what do you want me to do about him? And that kind of confession establishes a confidence and a foundation for you and me to stand on. One of the cool things about church is that you don't do it alone. So for instance, uh, this last Friday night and Saturday, some almost 50 women from our church got together and had a two hour meal, which so far I'm tracking sounds awesome. And then they talked for two hours. And I'll be honest, I'm not really wired that way. Like I can talk a long time, you all know that. Let's not pretend. You know I can, I'm good to talk, right? But sitting around and just, but they didn't just sit around and talk. No, no. There are four questions. And they sat around and had meaningful conversations about what it means to be connected to God. And spiritual seeds were sown. And some seeds that were sown were watered. And some seeds that had been sown and watered and were growing, there were some weeds, but some weeds were plucked up. And it was really cool what happened. When individuals got together and said, the cool thing about being the church is we're not just separate. We're doing this together. What's really cool, over the last few years, a handful of people who aren't all that wealthy, we're doing just fine. Most of us will make it through the winter, as I like to say, but we've gotten together and over the last seven years. We got together and just 
we're being the church. Rallying around the confession that Jesus is in charge of the world. And we got together over the last seven years. We've built a girl's dorm. We've rescued almost 50 young ladies in Kerala, India. Several of them have graduated college and one of them has already gotten married. And all of that was paid for, most 90 some percent of it was paid for by people in this church. That's the power of getting together. And the Bible tells us that the gates of hell will not be able to stand closed as we try to advance into darkness. This year, as we got together, we've helped over 100 individuals and couples sit down and have Christian counseling and work through their problems. And while their problems were very big and blinding them, through counseling, they began to understand that Jesus was bigger than their problems. They found hope and energy to move forward. And many of them saw dramatic advance on the problems that had been holding them back. That's the power of the church. And the gates of hell do not withstand that kind of onslaught. Some 650 people showed up here last weekend. I don't know what the count will be here this weekend. I think it was 647 showed up in house here. And one by one, people made their decisions. But we came together, and in this room, we lifted our voice, declared how awesome God is. We rallied around the power that comes when we choose to see the future and invest in the next generation. People took steps. It's the power of the church. So number six then. This is where I'm going to turn on you. We need new metrics. Do you know this word? Metrics. We need new metrics to determine not just how many people come and are a part of us, but how many people are going out and pushing back on the gates of hell. See, some people think about church and they think about the power of coming together, and it is. But it's not just the power to come together and be together. It's the power to come together, be together, grow together, and then go out and push back on these gates of hell. That's the power of the church. Number seven, it becomes a shift from seating capacity. Like how many people can sit in this room? And the answer to that is right now seated it's just like 420 chairs in the room, I think. And by Christmas Eve, Eve, there'll be about 500 seats in here. It's not just about seating capacity. When we start talking about Jesus and the power of the church, it becomes about sending capacity. What is our capacity to send out into the world and push back darkness? What is our capacity to push back darkness in families? to push back darkness on societal problems, to push back darkness. And the Bible tells us that with Jesus and the confession of who he is in our mind, in our hearts, on our lips, the Bible tells us that the gates of darkness, the gates of hell, will not be able to stop the sending power of the local church. And we've seen it. We've seen it. We've seen what happens when our church gets together. This week I visited the hospital and our church is, is such that I don't have to do a whole lot of that. It, we're mostly a younger church, but as we're getting older, I do more and more. And I visited a lady that told me the story of her first coming to church. And I remember, and I just want to share it with you. I want to tell you the power, the sending power of the local church. So I don't know how much longer this lady's going to be with us this side of, of heaven. And she wanted me to understand that she knew she was close to that and so we talked about what arrangements she wants and just the most humble and encouraging conversation considering how 
you know, serious the circumstances. So she said, here's what happened the first Sunday. I came to Four Corners. I came to Four Corners and Katrina had happened and I walked into the movie theater. A lot of you don't know, we first started in what's called now the AMC Theater at the time, the rave, right at Union Center. That was our first church building. I came in and Katrina just happened and you got up and said, hey, half the offering today is gonna go to the work of Katrina. Like we got budget needs, but we're gonna just send it to a church down there that's in the thick of it. And she's like, I was impressed by that, that a young church that doesn't have a lot of reserve and you know, they do this. I've been around church. I didn't hear that a lot. And then she said, at the end of the service, you said to folks, on your seat is a little plastic bag and a Sharpie marker. Do you know what people right now in Katrina need as much as they need anything else? And she said, then you said to us, they need shoes. Those shoes are wet. And as they clean up, there's going to just be a lot of need for shoes. And we would like you to take off your shoes and put them in that bag and write the size of the shoe on the bag, whether it's ladies or men, and that we were going to send them away. And she told me, <laughs> she said, I had just bought that week a brand new pair of naturalizer shoes. And I knew you don't take off your shoes in a theater. It's gummy and dirty and sticky down there, and you don't want to do that. So she said, I gave a little bit of the offering, and I walked out the door. And I got in my car, and we began to drive away. And I broke down, she said, and I cried like a baby. All the way to the house. And the Lord, the Lord began to convict me that I could trust him with all kinds of things, but I couldn't trust him to keep me from getting sick from a sticky theater floor. So she said, I went into the house and I got several pairs of shoes and I brought them back. And the little trailer where we were gathering stuff was right there. And I brought back several pairs of shoes and I left them and I walked away saying, I found my church. A church that would get together and people would leave in stocking feet and bare feet. That's what I want to be a part of. So I said to her, how does that make you feel? She said, well, I got to tell the truth. You're my pastor. I'll confess. I gave like six pairs of shoes, but I kept those naturalizers. Those are the best <laughs> pair of shoes I ever had. I love that kind of honesty. Oh, I love that. Like that's just, it's just, and here we are having a very, what could be an ugly conversation. And she's saying the power of the church sent it lifted her spirits. It lifted her spirits. Number eight, you cannot see the future if you've already seen it all. You can't see the future if you've already seen it all. Some of you have been around church so long, you've seen everything. You've seen it come, you've seen it go. You've seen it high, you've seen it low. You've seen it cold, you've seen it hot. You've seen it all. And you know it. The problem with that, the problem with being around church so long is... Sometimes we quit dreaming about the future. And I wanted to remind you today that God is the God who's already there. He's already there. And he gives you permission to think about what he wants to do there. I don't want to be the guy who's so focused on where we've been, where we are, that I forget to dream about where we're going. I'm going to run through what really should be a stand-alone message right now. Some of you, like, this is going to be eye-opening for you the next three minutes. But I want to walk you through the five functions of a healthy church real quick. When our staff get together, this is the very thing that we're using as a rubric to evaluate how we're doing. Five functions of a healthy church. We find those five functions 
really contained in the two verses underneath your uh, message notes right there, the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. Here are the five functions of a healthy church. Churches grow stronger through worship. A healthy church is a worshiping church where people take time. And as Pastor Will said, we right-size us and we right-size God. He gets bigger, we get smaller. That's what John the Baptist said to Jesus. He must increase, I must decrease. That's just what worship does. That's why you and I have to be worshipers. That's why while on occasion we'll have performance from our stage, most of the time we're going to lead people to worship. Because worship makes a church grow stronger. A worshiping church is a strong church. A worshiping Christian is a strong Christian. Number two, churches grow broader through ministry. The synonym term for ministry is serving. The Greek word for ministry is diaconus. We get a word deacon from it, servant. We grow broader. Our reach expands. Churches grow larger through evangelism. And a healthy church is a growing church. That word can mean a lot of different things, but at least it means that God regularly sends people who are not yet connected to him into a local body, that group embraces those people, they get on the journey with Jesus too. Churches grow warmer through fellowship. And churches grow deeper through discipleship. It's very difficult to hold all these things in balance. It's very difficult to do all of them well at the same time. We have to because the foundation of these things are not things that I've made up. They come to us from the pages of the Bible. In the great commandment, the Lord tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And that's worship. He tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's ministry. In the great commission, he tells us to go make disciples. That's evangelism. He tells us to baptize them. Uh, baptism always represented the idea of joining with. So on December 10th, we have, catch this, we have 12 adults and teenagers, high school people getting baptized right here on this stage. It's going to be wild. It's our biggest baptism maybe ever. I haven't checked the stats, but at least in a very long time. God's doing something there. It's incredible. You're going to hear a couple of their stories. that You're going to be blown away by that. And then churches grow deeper by discipleship. And the goal is, is in different seasons, you accentuate some, some fall to the background, but none of them ever go away. Every church does all five of these, even if they don't realize them, because some of them are done so poorly. When I think about the sending power of the local church, it jazzes me up, and it makes me contemplate where we've been and where we are and where we're going. So let me tell you where we've been. If you're our guest, it's a great Sunday to be here because you're going to hear a little bit of our heartbeat for just a moment. In 2016 and 2017, Four Corners Church prioritized worship and discipleship. So for the last two years, Pastor Will and I and the staff, uh, all, all of us, and as it relates to worship, but since he leads this room more than anybody else, we've said that from this stage and in this room, worship would get a lot more attention. So we changed the way we sing. And we changed the song choices. And we changed the engagement. And we pulled down performance and we elevated engagement. We wanted to help people worship. 
Because we know when they worship, it makes them stronger. We, we know that sometimes when you're facing challenges, you'll remember the words you've sing, the words you've sung, and they'll come back to you. Sometimes the words you sing will come back to you certainly more than the words I speak. In fact, historically, people have always gotten their theology from their music more than they've ever gotten it from their pastors in the, in the spoken word. And so we did, we did deep work evaluating the quality and the nature of our songs. And we brought worship nights. And last worship night, 175 people gathered in this room just you know, a week and a half ago. And we lifted our voices to God and we took a step forward in strength. And then we've focused on discipleship. We've said, we're going to pull back a lot of energy, and we're going to put a lot of energy here. And so uh, Pastor Melissa, she stepped away from student ministries, and she said, I'll help with adult ministries. And with her leadership and the other staff joining in, we've developed this path called growth, growth tracks, or the grow experience, if you will. Four different unique experiences where people could come and grow. And we've had over like 175 unique individuals go through at least part of it. And we've talked deep theology for three and a half hours that first session. Deep theology and the practice of a local church. Conversations people have often not had. And last session, almost everybody in that room, I only knew like five people. Everybody else, I didn't even really know their names, hardly. I'd seen them, said hello, but I didn't know them. And they asked such profound and deep questions on raw theology. I honestly felt like I was back in seminary for about a half an hour. It was a powerful conversation as we focused on discipleship. And we didn't apologize that as we focused on those things, we had to turn attention away from other things. Because you can't do everything every week. I just, I don't know how to do that. But in this coming year, we're going to focus on two other things. We're not going to drop down those things but we're going to turn staff attention towards a couple of other things. We're going to turn in 2018, we're going to prioritize ministry and evangelism. You're going to see the level of outreach and serving and the level of attention towards the lost get dramatic attention, dramatic effort, disproportionate attention. This is exciting to me. It's exciting because I know that worship and discipleship causes us to think about us, and that's healthy, that's good, it's right, it's just not complete. And some churches get stuck there. It's all about them and how healthy they are, how precise this place is, and how organized we are, and that's all good, but it's just not enough. And they get unbalanced and in, inward focused, and they don't realize it, but they start becoming kind of keepers of the aquarium, more than fishers of men, which is what Jesus told us to do. So in an attempt to stay balanced, we believe God is directing us as a church to focus on ministry, which is serving in and out of our congregation, as well as evangelism, which is opening our doors wider than we've opened them in a very long time and saying to people, you can come, we'll, we'll invite you in. Now, when you start making changes, what I've noticed is people get a little nervous it's okay, I, I get nervous. As I've said to you a hundred times, the only change I really like is the change I bring. And that's true for most people. That's true for you. You like change. Everybody likes change. You just like your change. You like the change everybody should make when you tell them to make it. That's the change you like, right? So what happens then, number 11, often the first thing to get cold is our feet. You ever notice that out in cold weather? Your feet get cold? Well, that's kind of a theological assumption too. We start making changes. People get a little nervous. They get cold feet. 
They don't want to move forward. They're like, wait, I'm, I'm going to sit back and watch. And that's okay. You can do that. Watch us. It's good. Watch us. Because here's what we're going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to press into these things, and you're going to see it. In fact, our Christmas offering reflects it. It's our heart to push back the darkness, not just as an organization, but in your life as well. And what's interesting about this stuff is when you do ministry, when you do evangelism, it's not just helping the organization. In fact, that's way down the list. It actually helps you. Jesus made it clear that if you will serve people, if you'll have a heart for them first, if you'll ask the question, how can I serve you? He made it clear that it would profoundly change your life. And then when we all do that together, it would change all of us. And the darkness from hell gets pushed back just a little more. So number 12, we have to remember this, that risk is right when it comes to church work. And this makes some people nervous. It makes me nervous. I'm that strange hybrid. I have training as an accountant. I did that for about 132 churches for a number of years. And I am a pastor, and I dream big, and I can't square those sometimes. I don't know how to do that. So risk is right when it comes to the kingdom of God, because if we're following him, he promises to be with us. Number 13, faithful churches pursue both width and depth, because neither is possible without the other. And you should do this in your own life. Depth in your understanding of God and the gospel and width as you serve people. It makes you balanced when you do that. We have to wrestle with the fact that everybody's called. It's not a handful of pastors, but it's the church on the streets. It's not the staff, but the staff, as Ephesians 4 say, church leaders are here to help people do ministry. We have to remember that the week, number 15, is as important as the weekend the metaphor in my mind is we are an aircraft carrier. We're not a cruise ship and we're not a battleship. The local church is an aircraft carrier, somewhat removed from the immediate fighting, but sending squadrons into the immediate fighting. And then they come back, we make sure they're healthy, we fill them up with gas and we send them back out. We're not a cruise ship, although I've been to churches and I've met people who seem to think we are, and we're not a battleship only. Number 16, a church is not a group of people gathered around a leader. It becomes a leadership factory, ascending factory, where we work hard to be balanced in all that God has called us to do. And we remember that he, the Lord, was with us in our past. He's currently with us, and he'll be with us moving forward. I wanted you today, when you leave, to remember that Jesus is at work in his church and he's building his church and he's building it here. And I wanted you to have the foundational assumptions guiding this staff as we lead the church. That we are pushing towards outreach and ministry on, on ways you have not seen us do in a very long time. And we're gonna maintain the other things, but this is gonna get our primary attention. And I didn't want you to just know it. I want you to to decide for yourself that you're going to be a part of it. You're going to help us do it. I want you to get healthy as a follower of Jesus and deal with your own stuff. Do it. And at the same time, serve others. The enemy would love for you to keep working on you so long as you don't turn and try to help anybody else. 
It's a little trap we get into. And some of you, he'd love to keep you focused all out here so you don't have to deal with the hard stuff that's going on in you. He needs to do both. And I want you to go on this journey with us. This is gonna be an exciting year. You're gonna see the gifts you give financially and the gifts of time that you give and the gifts of energy that you give. You're gonna see them do dramatic things. And together, we're gonna push back the gates of hell. It's gonna be powerful. I wanted you to know where we're going. I wanted you to see how we are focusing it upon Jesus' words, that if we'll keep the fact that he's in charge of his church, it's his, it's not mine, it's not yours, it's his, 